For several reasons, last Saturday, eight days ago, was a significant one for me. And one of the reasons was this, that Letitia and I and our family attended the wedding of Lucas Cohn in northern Indiana. Lucas is the younger son of our very good friends, uh, Pastor Kip and Mary Cohn. They were our long-term teammates when we lived uh, for a decade in Berlin, Germany. And we knew Lucas for the better part of his first eight years of life. In God's grand and humorous plan, Lucas was actually one of our pastoral interns here at Grace Polaris Church this past summer. The wedding of uh, Lucas and Liz was beautiful. They had lots and lots of family and friends present. Kip officiated the wedding, of course, and it was a classic wedding in some senses, and it was a unique and meaningful wedding with certain elements in others. And until last summer, our kids only knew little Lucas when they were yet littler. And so Kip was Uncle Kip to them and Aunt Mary, and we were Uncle Mike and Aunt Letitia to Taylor and Lucas. My, how things have changed. The wedding itself brought back a whole lot of nostalgia for me, and not just about the Cohn family or about little Lucas, now old enough to get married uh, to this wonderful young lady. It was also nostalgic for me because I've been married for 25 years. And, and as I listened to them recite their vows, the words struck me as wonderfully ideal and hopelessly naive. They each prayed and, and beautiful prayers of laudable promises and, and a great sense of God's leading and his provision into the future. And a, and a bit of cynicism struck me, I must confess. Just wait till you've been married a few years. But also a lot of idealism rushed back into my mind. That's exactly how marriage ought to be. What a gift from God. What a masterful design. And it took yet one more marriage, one more wedding, to provide me with this fresh infusion of wonder and of delight and of admiration. Because we know that for marriages come, according to God's plan, partnership and sexual intimacy and, and often children and parental responsibilities and, and family connections and more. What God has designed for us goes as far as the eye can see and as far as life will take us. Today and for the next uh, 10 weeks, we have a series on marriage and family and parenting. We're going to explore all of the pivotal teachings of the Bible for those defining realities of life. And, and the sermon series is entitled, Heaven Help the Home. Because we all know, we all experience that the home, literally the home, and, and the figurative environment where marriage and family and parenting takes place, needs a lot of help. Howard Hendricks wrote a book by that title 40-some years ago, and he knew what he was asking for. We need enormous help to experience what God designed. And life and relationships remind you and me of that on a daily basis. To be honest, I've been a bit schizophrenic about this series for quite some time, both quite eager and, and quite reticent. I, I've liked to have thought of myself as a young man, a young father, a young husband. What do I know about these topics? What can I show? Honestly, in my most candid moments, I've had the thought that, boy, I don't sufficiently have it together. I don't have enough credibility to talk about these things in a profound way. What if other people see my imperfect life, an imperfect marriage, an imperfect parenting? I don't want to make the same mistake that some other young leaders make, doling out all kinds of conviction and counsel only 
to reveal their own lack of experience. This past June, we celebrated 25 years of marriage. Oldest daughter's 20 years old, finishing college in the next couple of years. Our son's going off to college next year. And I have to ask myself, how much longer do you have to wait, Mike? What more must you know and experience to have any credibility? And the stories around me kept coming. Struggling marriages, rebellious children, malicious patterns, broken families, and not all just out there, but in here, at grace. The need for this exploration cries out. So here we are. I have to say this morning, I speak as one of you, but all of us want to hear from God. And I pray that God will speak. We're going to be looking at a lot of things here. God's design, blame-shifting, curses, communication, roles, ruptures, sexuality, singleness, parenting, discipline, forgiveness, all of the mountain peaks on this subject in the Bible. So it might yet get cold this winter, but I got to say, we're full of hot and sensitive topics here at Grace this winter. Heaven help the home. Indeed. Today we're going to look at God's creation of humanity. We're going to look at the gift of marriage, marriage full of dreams, full of disappointments, full of joys, full of caricatures. Before we look at what God has to say, let's hear from what some youth have to say about marriage. Ricky, 10 years old, perceptively replied when asked how to best make a marriage work, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. Alan, age 10, said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like sports too. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Anita, age 9, in answering the question about whether it's better to be single or married, said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Freddie, age 6, when asked to give the right age to get married, said, no age is good to get married at. You got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> and curse in age 10, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> marriage and family. Marriage and family. The, the axis around which our society turns. God's design. And many of us are experiencing that reality right now. Some of you have experienced that, at least with dependent children. Some of you are yet to experience that. Not everyone, though. From the outset here, I want to make clear that God's will is not marriage for everyone. We're going to see that today. We'll explore that more in depth in the coming weeks. Not everyone will be a parent. Not everyone will grow up in a, a, a family, though that's God's design for optimal health. But all of us will grow up as children. All of us long for perfect parents, and none of us will receive them. Except for the original parent, the father, the one who's offered to all of us, God himself. Let me say from the outset here that this whole series is valuable for all of us and for each of us. I'm glad you're here. Because when the Bible speaks, we're fools to ignore it even if certain topics aren't directly our experience in the now. We all need to hear what the Bible has to say. We all have a vested interest 
in stable families, in healthy marriages, whether that's your lot in life right now or not. That's true for you if you're single today. And all of us who are married, we have a vested interest in healthy singles. We need each other. And the biggest reason why is this, because if you know Jesus Christ, you and I belong to a more important family, even more important than the physical family that you're a part of. And you and I are part of a more important marriage, even more important than the marriage that you're in right now. We are part of the bride of Christ, if we know him. And so our marriages, our families are actually pointing beyond themselves on a daily basis to greater spiritual realities. Marriage family is not primarily about your happiness or mine, your fulfillment or mine. It's part of God's story. But we get ahead of ourselves. Let's begin at the beginning. For that, we need to look at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, pull that out and turn to the first pages of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to put a hard copy in your hands. Just raise your hand. One of our hosts will put that in your hands. Uh, gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, take it, keep it, read it. And if you do and just forgot it today, you can turn that in at the end of our service. You and I need to be reminded. We need to be re-enchanted with what God has made for himself and for us in the first place. And my desire today is that God raises our eyes, that he lifts our eyes beyond what is to see what once was and what could be. In a fantastic book called The Gospel for Life, The Gospel of Marriage, available over here in room six for purchase uh, after the service, I'd highly recommend this and would encourage you to check this out uh, during our series, we read this in the introduction. Christians have too passively consumed the culture's vision of marriage to the exclusion of the biblical vision of marriage. And Genesis 1 and 2 paints that picture for us. I invite you to stand. We're going to read uh, several verses from Genesis chapter 1 and then a good chunk from Genesis chapter 2 as we see the story and lay the foundation. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, I read from the NIV. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Over in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thanks, you may have a seat. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. Hope you have a worship program to take some notes. The first point in our outline, God made humanity with dignity and differentiation. Dignity and differentiation. Most of us know the story of creation for six days. It's a similar pattern, and it's spectacular. And we read again and again, and God says. And again and again, and it was so. And again and again, and it was good. And again and again, and there was evening and there was morning, the first and second, third and fourth and fifth day. Toward the end of his work on the sixth day, as God had put the decorations of the universe all in place, he brings out his crown jewel. Humanity, mankind, man, the first human being, made in God's image and likeness, unlike any of the rest of creation, unlike any of the creatures. What's that mean there in Genesis 1? In seminary, 25 or so years ago, my longest research project dealt with the meaning of the imago Dei, the image of God. And I can summarize 50 pages and a whole lot of footnotes in this way. To be made in the image and likeness of God means three R's. Representation, responsibility, and relationship. Let's unpack those. Number one, human beings are uniquely made to represent or to reflect in creature form some of who God is in his character, representation. Number two, human beings are uniquely given the responsibility to rule over creation, to rule over the creatures, to steward what God had made to promote flourishing for all. And that includes, by the way, being fruitful and multiplying. Number three, relationship. Human beings are uniquely able to relate to God in a way that none of the other creatures can, including your dog and cat. Human beings are uniquely made for eternity and to delight in God's being as their greatest treasure. This is God's design, to represent him, to take responsibility over his creation, and to relate to him as his image bearers. Oh, and one more thing the author writes here. The image bearers are not all alike. They come in two distinct packages. There are males and there are females. Wonderfully equal in design, wonderfully complementary in distinction. God differentiates here for our delight and also for our ability to reflect him. Remember, God has always existed in complementarity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one being. One nature. As we look ahead here, we we note that marriage is not a human construct. Mary Cassian, in perhaps the best chapter in this little book, writes about that. God created marriage. It was God who created mankind. It was God who created male and female. It was God who created marriage and sex. So what we're talking about in this series, what we're talking about today, is not an invention of human beings. This is not humanity with some kind of enlightened arrangement. Let's, Let's try marriage and family. No, marriage and family and parenting and children are designed by God. And and that very design causes us to thrive and God to look glorious when we follow his pattern. Point two, God completes the dilemma of creation. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 introduces a, a jolt, a, a turn of events. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, about 50 verses up until then, we see this delightful story where everything is good. Not just ho-hum good, but wonderful, spectacular, mind-boggling, satisfying. God is, the, is making the masterpiece of the universe. Creation is perfect and profoundly so. And yet, like listening to some grand orchestra that makes an unexpected key change or makes everyone kind of contort their faces, Genesis 2.18 stops us, the hearers, in our tracks. It is not good for the man to be alone. Not good. What could possibly be not good about what God has made? That, that's impossible. Does that mean that the creation's gone awry? Does that mean that, oops, God recognizes he made a mistake? Hardly. What it means is we're still in the middle of the story here. The curtain hasn't come down. There, there's a plot twist in this divine drama that, that needs resolution. And, and Moses, quoting God himself here, makes that clear in the story. And it begs the question from hearers and readers like us, what here is not good? What's the problem with Adam? We tend to think here when we read this that Adam's predicament was his relational emptiness. Perhaps. But I'm not convinced, and here's why. Because aloneness is not only a psychological isolation, but it's also an incapacity, not being able to fulfill a calling or purpose. The fact that the man's being alone was not good had to do with the fact that he could not do all that God had planned for him. It's not just about personal feeling, but it's about a purposeful product. Adam had a mission given by God that he would struggle to accomplish. In fact, he couldn't accomplish it at all on his own. And God, not Adam, had to point this out to Adam. God had to bring Adam up to speed here. Ray Ortland says correctly, the man did not see the problem of his aloneness. And so God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting him to this task. Here it is, in serving God, the man encountered his own need. That's what takes place here in chapter 2, verse 21 and following. God provides Adam with this ultimate object lesson about what he lacked and about what God was offering to him. And life is a lot like that. Again and again, we experience in life that we don't know what we're missing until someone points it out to us. God announces the dilemma in verse 18. Adam realizes the dilemma in verse 20. There's a phrase there that comes up that we need to explore. Verse 18 and verse 20, this curious phrase, a helper suitable for him, comes from the Hebrew word ezer. And languages around the world struggle to express what's meant here. We read the word in most of our translations, helper, and then some variant of this phrase, suitable for him, NIV, or fit for him, or as his complement. The idea is a counterpart that perfectly complements Adam. It's the notion of completeness. Think of two puzzle pieces or, or two dance partners. I love the phrase in this book here, a complementary counterpart. This is a like opposite of Adam, who perfectly matches him. 
Note here, there's no superiority, there's no inferiority. That, that word ezer is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, even of God himself. It, it describes there and here someone that, that fulfills or provides what is lacking. In this case, what man, the man, cannot do alone. The man and the woman correspond physically, socially, spiritually. The, the woman, by relative difference, note this, but essential equality would be the man's fitting complement. But by now it should be clear to all of us as we read the text of Scripture here that God wasn't only interested in physiological difference, though the woman certainly would be that. God could have created a replica of Adam to be his complement, a, a fitting counterpart, but God didn't do that. And if you follow the logic here, that should speak volumes to us about distortions in our world and in our society, about the divine design of the marriage union. God designs fitting differentiation for his creatures and for their flourishing. The physical difference of the man and the woman graphically symbolizes the difference of their nature. Mary Cassian again says male and female are not clones who just happen to have a few different body parts. A complement is either of two corresponding parts that completes the whole. Now, as we're reading here, it would be very easy to conclude that it is the will of God that every descendant of Adam, every person should thus have a counterpart, that marriage is God's will for everyone, and not to be married means to be incomplete, to be lonely, to be inferior. That, friends, is not true. We see lots of people in history and in the present, lots of people in the Bible who are single, never married, maybe by choice, by circumstances, widowed, divorced. Ah, but that's a fallen world, you say. That wasn't God's intention in the beginning. Here's the strongest reply I can give you. Jesus was never married. Jesus never had a physical counterpart like Adam did. And yet Jesus was perfect. Jesus was full of human emotions, but Jesus didn't have a companion like Adam. Jesus was a red-blooded male. Jesus never experienced sex. And yet Jesus was fully human. That means that if God's design for humanity was that every person would be married, then Jesus was a failure. And we know that he wasn't. And none of you are who are single, whatever your circumstances or your desires. Let's say it like this. Marriage is normative, but not superior or necessarily preferred for everyone. You don't need a spouse to be fully human. If you're single here today, I want to say this as loud as I can. You're loved by God. You are enjoyed by God. You fit in the plan of God. We're going to look at that more and more in some of the coming weeks. Back to our story here. God makes his declaration, and then he gets to work on the rest of his work. God becomes this brilliant, this masterful, this multisensory teacher with Adam. He parades all the creatures in front of the man. And I think they're specifically mentioned here in verse 20 because they appear as the most likely companions for Adam, the most likely candidates to compliment him. And yet we find again and again that they're sadly inadequate. 
God gives Adam the task of naming each one of them. And then the author writes in verse 20, that which surely went through the man's mind. Um, who's with me? And God must have thought, that's the whole point of the exercise, Adam. Adam delights, point three, in the woman as his complementary companion. God completes this object lesson with Adam, and then he preps him for surgery. Outpatient procedure. Out-of-body removal and an out-of-this-world result. Adam went to sleep wondering what was absent for him. Adam woke up in awe of what was present for him. Adam's statement there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 is one for the ages. It only works in English, but I think he said there, Whoa, man! This is now, this is finally, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam instinctively, I think given by God, realizes that this new creature was not only from him, but for him. Not so that he could dominate her, not so that he could neglect her, but as a compliment to be received, to be enjoyed. The man perceives the woman not as his rival, Ray Ortland says, but as his partner, not as a threat, because of her equality with himself, but as the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. For all the talk we have about differentiation, about difference in this new creature, the woman, we never dare miss the clear intent that she was made as his equal. She was made to complete him by inference and to be completed by him. The man and the woman are equal in value, equal in nature. Always have, are, always will be. And nothing in our culture and nothing that people can do can negate the design of God for that kind of value. Even the place where she comes from, his side, his rib, signals something about that. And it's almost impossible to improve on the old Bible commentator Matthew Henry. He writes this about Eve. Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. Adam's been given a partner here, perfectly suited, perfectly designed for him. And that's God's design still. Point four, God reveals the pattern and purpose of marriage. Finally, here in verse 24, we come to the culmination of this creation account, summarized best in three words, leave, cleave, and weave. God's not acting anymore. He, he's completed his work, but now we get this divinely given explanation about the purpose of marriage. Leaving means a change of relational priorities and loyalties. Up until the wedding day, the first obligations for a man, for a woman, are to his or her parents, and that's as it should be. But from that day forward, things ought to change. And every man, every woman, every mother, every father needs to hear that. In fact, in wedding ceremonies that I do, I specifically address the parents to let them know that their claim of priority, of authority on their child now changes. And when they embrace that, a great liberation takes place for the new couple, leaving, cleaving, the idea is to attach yourself to your spouse. Obviously, there are sexual implications there, but the idea goes deeper than that. It means to stick 
to one's spouse. It's a kind of covenant. It's gluing your lives together to each other. Many of us, when we were in elementary school, took part in relay races, and the three-legged race was a favorite of some and despised by others. Two ankles attached together, and wherever you went and whatever you did, you went and you did together. Marriage is a voluntary tying of lives so that the rest of your lives are spent and lived and enjoyed together. But unlike the three-legged race, which is over in a brief time, marriage is not a temporary experience. Like super glue, it's meant as a permanent reality. If you've ever seen what happens when you try to detach something that has been super glued together, you know the damage that takes place. And that's true with marriage as well. Marriage is designed to be permanent and to be productive. That, that language of covenant is really important. Now, a lot of times in our day and age, modern couples uh, consider their vows more like a contract than a covenant. You know how a contract work, works. It has an end date. It's, it's temporary. But a covenant is permanent. A covenant is a legal binding agreement, a, a commitment that, that outlines obligations for each party in the relationship. A, a covenant differs from just a contract in that it formalizes the terms of a relationship. It doesn't just define an exchange of goods or services. Unfortunately, we tend to view marriage like we view our cable contract. It automatically renews until or unless we opt out. When the price goes up or the service becomes subpar, we want to cancel the contract. We want to switch carriers. Nothing could be further from God's intentions here. Nothing could be more destructive. See, marriage isn't some social custom that a bunch of enlightened human beings came up with. The, the kind that we define and then redefine at will. Marriage is a lasting covenant. I want to give you a couple of excellent definitions of marriage. You can look these up online under gracepolaris.org sermons. The first comes from the Baptist Faith and Message in 2000. It says this, marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime goes on to say, marriage is a spiritual and legal covenant between two complementary counterparts. These words matter. Through which they are joined by God in a one flesh union and commit to pursue and enjoy a conjugal, that means sexual, exclusive, indivisible, lifelong love relationship. And it's public. It's a sacred bond between them, witnessed to, including by God. Here's another one from John Stott, a man who was never married, but spoke eloquently about marriage. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by a public leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned by the gift of children. Leave, cleave, the last one, weave. It means to intertwine your lives together. That's the idea of one flesh. It doesn't mean that you lose all of your personal identity. Some people fear that. It's not like, quite like a, a baking recipe where you put the ingredients in and then they lose all distinction. But it does mean interdependence. It does mean a joining, a sharing of lives. Lives that involve residency and sexuality, relationships, finances, possessions, 
leisure, calling, purpose, convictions. If we're honest, we would admit that we rarely cede or let go of too much of ourselves. Usually we hold too much back. Mary Cassian, again in this book, says it's a jaw-dropping, mind-blowing concept that God creates a union so deep, so complete, that the individual parts are supernaturally eclipsed by the greater whole. That's marriage. I remember Dr. David Plaster, Pastor Dave here at Grace, saying this to Letitia and me 25 years ago. And I had no idea what he was talking about when he said it. Now I see it more and more. It's this profound fusion of two lives into one. This sharing of lives by mutual consent. It's this really complete and, and permanent giving over of oneself into this new circle of existence with your partner. Verse 25 summarizes the beautiful innocence of God's creation. It says they were naked and unashamed, not just physically, not just sexually, though that was true to be sure, but also socially, emotionally, spiritually. They had nothing to hide from each other, and they had nothing to hide before God. They were at ease with one another. They, they didn't fear exploitation or misuse. They were uninhibited. They were comfortable in their own skin. That's important. As we see the story unfold, it doesn't stay that way. But here the man and the woman are designed with this spiritual capacity, this partnership to serve God, to enjoy all that he had made and to steward it for his glory. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2 cannot be overstated in importance. One says Genesis 2.24 is the single most important verse in all the Bible explaining the meaning and purpose of marriage. And here's the profound mystery. From the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God intended marriage to be a depiction of the gospel. You know what that means? It means as wonderful as marriage is designed to be between a man and a woman, marriage is actually pointing beyond them. It has a higher purpose. Your marriage, my marriage, is not just about us. It's ultimately about God. It says something profound about God. From the beginning, marriage was a visible object lesson. Love that phrase. Given by God to teach us about invisible human realities. God created manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sex because he wanted us to have symbols, to, to have images, to have language powerful enough to convey the idea of who God is and what relationship with him is all about. Marriage speaks of God. It's a beautiful, it's a fabulous picture. And I want to encourage you to let that sink in, to resist the cynicism, to linger there, God's design, then and now, for our good, for His glory. Or said differently, God designed marriage for humanity's unending flourishing and ultimate fulfillment in him. I'm going to invite the worship band to come up or Robert to play. And as you do, I'd like to close with a poem. It's a brief poem. It was physically given to us as a wedding gift, and it's been hanging in our bedroom ever since. And it still speaks permanently, personally, prophetically. It's called Marriage Takes Three. I once thought marriage took just two to make a go, but now I'm convinced it takes the Lord also. 
And not one marriage fails to enter, fails where Christ is asked to enter as lovers come together with Jesus at the center. But marriage seldom thrives and homes are incomplete till he is welcome there to help avoid defeat. In homes where Christ is first, it's obvious to see, those unions really work, for marriage still takes three.